Great. Um, hey everyone, uh, welcome to the, the section three um, tackling STEM webinar. Um, uh, good to have everyone here. I promise not to take too long of your, your Saturday night. Um, I guess we'll, we'll, this is sort of a very informal sort of webinar and I, I you know, don't want it to be like a, like a sort of a conference type style. So please like chuck in the chat or the Q&A if you have any questions um, or if you wish to unmute and talk as well, that's okay as well. Um, cool. So I'll just introduce myself, uh, tell you a bit about what I do. Um, and then we'll just get started with, well, we'll ask you a couple of questions and then we'll get started with the rest of the webinar, okay? So uh, my name is Ange. Um, I'm currently one of the Section 3 managers at Fraser's. Um, so I oversee a couple of, uh, or if not all of the Section 3 that um, Fraser's produces and, 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 you know, shows to the rest uh, of GAMSAT takers. Um, and other than that, I tutor section three and in interviews here and there. Um, in terms of outside phrases, I'm a third year med student at Monash, um, but went through the same sort of process that uh, inevitably everyone will go through with um, the GAMSAD, GEMSAS, and was fortunate enough to, to sort of um, get a place at Deakin and Monash and ended up with Monash. Um, and that's sort of my journey towards, towards medicine. Um, but I am aware that the GAMSAT is being used increasingly for a variety of purposes, not just medicine. So, you know, it'd be good to hear if anyone is using this uh, for a different purpose. It's always interesting to hear. Um, other than that, that that's sort of uh, my journey and what I do. Um, and this webinar is essentially going to be focused around Section 3 strategy and, and, you know, sort of what to look out for in STEMs and things like that. Um, before we progress, I don't have any formal slides. I was just going to show a couple of STEMs, get some, get some uh, feedback from them and, and then sort of work through them. Um, is there, could you talk in the chat if there's anything in particular that you'd like me to cover? or any questions to start off the, the discussion of today's class or, yeah, any, any questions or anything you'd like addressed? Is uh, everyone sort of sat the the games at previously? Is this the first time? First time, okay. First time. Logarithms. Sure. I can give you a quick toot on it. Um, I don't have a stem on it. Um, we get a couple of sort of um, queries through the Instagram sort of interactive things uh, for um, abstract stems. So I have one of one of those and a quick sort of uh, a simple data data graphy one. Um, don't have any hereditary ones on me, but um, yeah, there should be more in our question bank if you have access to that. Um, but cool, it, given that it's the majority of people's first, or majority as in five people, 
um, it's her first time doing it. Any particular questions that you have that you would like for me to address? Recording will be on the Atlas after it's um, after the the session, and you'll have access to that if you signed up. Um, not to our courses; it's just the free one. Any other questions that you want me to address? So there's one about hereditary complex organic pathways. Great. Um, managing time for section three uh, approach to questions. Sure. So we'll start off with um, the hereditary sort of questions. Um, now, don't have any particular ones on me. Uh, I can try and look towards the later of our uh, later part of our um session um but with hereditary questions it's unfortunately the part of the games how that really requires that sort of um prerequisite knowledge to be used um and utilized um and that that's the only part of biology that you sort of really need to have a basic understanding of if you're sort of sitting here not really sure what the stems are about um i would sort of the, the basics that i would know would be how to draw up a punnett square um, how to sort of have basic sort of modes of um, knowing your basic modes of inheritance, you know, your autosomal dominant, your autosomal recessive, um, sex links dominant, sex linked uh, recessive, um, and, and sort of like your white, why, you know, inherited diseases and whatnot. Um, you don't need to know the diseases uh, in particular, just sort of how the inheritance comes about. Knowing how to read a pedigree chart would be useful as well. Um, but other than that, it's the basics sort of uh, genetics that you would get from, from Khan Academy or our essentials. Um, so you don't need to know everything. It's the very basics of just doing up a Punnett square, knowing what a genotype is and being able to work with the information that's in front of you. The majority of genetic stems and hereditary stems you get will be maths based um, because genetics in and of itself is just predominantly maths. Um, so you'd be working with percentages and ratios. So if you are um, uncomfortable with hereditary questions or genetics questions, um, I would maybe step a take a step back and maybe start to think a bit about if you're comfortable with ratios and, and formulas, um, not formulas, ratios and percentages, because that's what they're testing. Um, so that's, I, I hope that answers that question. I understand I can't explicitly answer it without doing a question. So I'll try and find it towards the end. Um, and we'll move on to the second sort of question in the chat. Um, how do you manage timing for section three and any advice on approaching the questions? Um, so I'll, I'll just sort of quickly uh, grab this whiteboard thing that I'm assuming everyone can see. Um, the, within section three, there, there's sort of two sort of strategies that I would break things into, macro and micro. Okay, so macro is more your sort of uh, exam taking strategy, okay? And micro is more your STEM-based, um, um, your more your STEM-based strategy, okay? So let me sort of go through it a little bit. Um, I'm assuming people have done mock exams and things like that. Um, if so, chuck in the chat, what's your, what's your way of going through it? Do you go chronologically from one to 75? Do you find stems that you like? Um, do you go back to front? Uh, it sounds funny, but I've had students do that. 
Um, what do you, what's, what's your approach? What's your macro approach? Is anyone comfortable enough to share? The only reason we talk about this is because the macro strategy can help you with the timing. You can sort of use your timing um, to your advantage. Um, so there's different ways. So please, please chuck it in the chat, but um, there's different ways of sort of doing um, or having macro approaches. Personally, I find it easy to just go one to 75. Um, that was definitely the way that I did it, um, mainly because it limits bias. It also makes sure that I give every stem a fair go um, and, and make sure that I don't miss things here and there because I'm choosing stems that I want to do um, first and I'm not missing everything else. And then I figure out in the last 10 minutes that I have like two stems left. So personally, chronologically, that it, it worked for me, but other people, it might not work so hard um, or work so well. Um, the reason being that if you, the first stem that you see, if, if that's a difficult stem for you, um, that you may get a little discouraged and the rest of the exam is impacted. And that's one of the disadvantages of choosing that macro, macro strategy. Um, now in doing this, it, it's really important to keep to time. So I strictly abided to sort of like two minutes of question. Um, and if I went anything more than that, I would just sort of you know, I'd stop, put down an answer and move on. To me, it was more important to attempt all 75 questions um, than sort of, you know, choose a particular bunch that I was definitely going to get right. Um, personally, I found that it was difficult to know whether it's definitely correct or not. Sometimes it's a very obvious answer and everything else doesn't make sense. Sometimes it's just very ambiguous. Um, so, you know, with that approach, it's really important to stick to time and sort of let go of that sort of perfectionistic mindset that you're going to get everything right. If anything you take away from today, please take away the fact that you cannot sort of get a, like 75 out of 75. I don't think anyone has, even the people who score 100 in section three, get roughly like 60 to 65 out of 75 or something like that. Questions are meant, some questions you're meant to make mistakes on, you're meant to get wrong. Okay, um, so the first strategy really banks on the fact that you let go of that perfectionistic mindset, you give it your best go, you get down to a 50-50, you choose your answer if you're running out of time and move on, okay? So this is one strategy and that'll help you with the time management um, aspect of the exam. Um, the, the second sort of um, uh, strategy that I see is the block method, right? The block method is where people go, all right, like I'm gonna do questions uh, one to 20, um, and I'm, that's going to be a good 40 minutes, okay? Um, or if you can't focus for that long, that's fine. I'm going to do questions 1 to 15, 16 to 30, right? Um, and so on and so forth uh, in 15 questions intervals, okay? So within your 15 questions, you spend half an hour on it, take like a 30-second breather, move on to the next set. And within that set, people tend to choose stems that they like and do them first. So let's say within questions, you know, um, one to 15 housed, uh, I don't know, uh, four stems, okay? Um, and let's say I order them, so four stems, one, two, three, four, um, and I order them in, you know, the, the, the way that the order that I like and I find easiest. So I might do stem three first, two, four, and then finally I might do the first one. 
okay? But I all I do all of these within the time limit of 30 minutes, but I'm still choosing within the set which ones I like and what I like to do. Um, I tend that this is, I tend to see that this is the optimal sort of strategy, mainly because it makes sure that you're staying within time, you're attempting all the questions, but um, you're also playing to your strengths a little bit, you know? Um, so th this is sort of the second strategy. The third strategy is to just go through the entire exam during reading time, find the ones you like, do them first, and then do the other ones that are remaining. The only disadvantage I'd say is things that you look at. Like if you look at a stream straight away and you think, yeah, that's easy. Like I'm going to fly through this. And then you read the actual thing, you get to the actual questions um, and they're really difficult to start off with, right? And this is the sort of gamble that you take with choosing approaches like that. Um, that you're, you're not, you know, you don't know 100% of the time what something's going to be like when you get into it. Um, so that's just a disadvantage to keep at the back of your mind as well. Okay. So this is the first strategy. Oh, sorry. This is the second strategy. This is the first. The third is just to find ones you like, do them first, and then do everything else. Also be aware that you don't want to miss questions. That's a second sort of biggest disadvantage within that strategy. Um, and I guess the last strategy is to do it by science. I say it's the last because it's getting more outdated. Um, no STEM has one particular science that it's testing. Um, and because of that, it's harder to sort of, you know, know that this is a physics STEM just because it has a formula, but when in reality, all the questions are about how the relationships within the formulas than the numbers themselves. Um, so that, that's sort of the last strategy. So those are the macro strategies that I was talking about. And the macro strategies will help you sort of stick to time and, and sort of have a rigid um, sort of structure within your time, right? Um, there's a couple of strategies uh, within the chat. Um, typically sort of starting with bio because you find them easy moving into the rhythm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's perfectly fine. Again, be aware that the ones that tend to be tricky within the GAMSAT um, are those long-worded bio ones. They start off with very theory-like questions and then in the middle they throw in a formula and it becomes suddenly maths, right? Um, so just keep aware of the strategy, know your limitations, but at the same time be very certain that you're going to have a macro strategy. Um, going into section three without a macro strategy is is sort of, it's it's like, it's you're you're going into a dark room, you know, and, and you can't like you basically can't see anything. So please have a macro strategy in the way you go about the exam. It's really important. Um, the micro strategy is going to help address the other questions within the chat. So the other question um, was sort of co about complex organic pathways. Um, now complex organic pathways. That's definitely a type of stem, stem within your um, uh, within your micro sort of strategy um so within complex organic stems can someone chuck in the chat what they find most difficult about organic chemistry stems can you chuck in the chat why that's a why that's a challenge functional groups Unfortunately, uh, functional groups is just sort of something that we need to memorize and need to know. There are some pivotal ones I'll chuck in the chat um, later, but processing info, lots of pictures and info language. Cool. Would I be fair in saying that there's always a paragraph that describes the mechanism of the, um, yeah, and there's always a paragraph that 
talks about the mechanism of the picture or the, the pathway that's there. Um, and then most people just lose track in that pathway because it starts to talk about nucleophilic addition attack and all this oxide ions and all this stuff um, where it just makes no sense. Am I fair in assuming that that's where people get stuck? Yeah, great. So I say great because it's all the same pattern, right? So complex organic um, chemistry, like the, the the major thing, major skill that's being uh, tested there is visual reasoning, nothing else. So visual reasoning being a fancy term for just pattern recognition, right? So things to look out for within organic chemistry pathways um, are your rules and concepts. So sometimes within the stem itself, you might get, um, a sentence that says, oh, this reaction takes place, it only takes place in acidic conditions. That right there is a limitation, right? Um, so what that does, it essentially limits the scope of the stem, right? So it only happens in acidic conditions. I promise you one of the questions will be, something happening in a basic condition, it'll give you all sorts of wacky diagrams as options and one will be cannot be determined. And that will be the answer because you don't know what this reaction is gonna be like in a basic condition. It can only happen in this week, right? So majority of organic uh, STEM questions, the first thing you look out for are rules and concepts. It happens in acidic conditions. When this gets added to this, this forms. So you wanna know what are your basic um, inputs, what are your basic outputs? Treat it like a pathway, and that'll help you sort of understand the broader, the broader, um, the broader mechanism or uh, the workings of this entire pathway. Okay, so rules and concepts really important. Um, inputs and outputs. The, the third thing that that's sort of important, and I think this is all for organic chemistry really, um, is example similarity. So what this means is. Um, uh, whatever example that they give within the, um, you know, whatever example that they give within the STEM itself, the answers and the mechanisms with which they want you to work and think through are very, very similar to the mechanism they've shown in the STEM. Okay, um, so it's nothing weird and wacky that they're trying to throw at you. The pictures that, that are there, you don't need to sort of sit down and analyze what each part are. You need to think about what's coming in, what's going out, how do they look different, okay? And what are the little things that are changing within each step? And that'll help you understand what the entire reaction is. And the questions are all going to be based on that. With organic chemistry, there's sort of like three, three types of questions that that can occur it is like you have the product here is a product that was formed by um uh, i don't know i'm gonna name this um uh reaction the claisen clope reaction which is an actual reaction right um as a result here is a product of the claisen clope reaction okay um what are the reactants here's the product what are the reactants the second thing you can be asked is what are the products with the given reactants. And the third thing that you can be asked, probably, is based on context, right? So your worded statements, which of the following statements are true? This can happen in a, um, in, uh, this can happen in acidic conditions, this can happen, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so within organic STEM questions, there are three major things that can be asked. 
reactants, products, and something based on context, okay? And majorly, the things you're looking out for are you're looking through a lens of pattern recognition. So you're looking for the rules and concepts within the STEM. Look at your mechanism. Look at what's going in, what's coming out. Look at how they're uh, looking differently. And sort of try to understand what's changing within the example because and, and use that as a framework for getting into your questions. Okay. So that that's sort of my advice for anything based on you know, organic chemistry. Um, they're all the same. I promise you all the stems within organic chemistry are the same. They're all based on these three things and these three questions. Okay. Um, the functional groups that are sort of important to know, um, you know, know your alkyls. Okay. So your methyl groups and things like that. Uh, know your alcohols, know your carboxylic acids, um, know how they look, know your ketones, um, and, you know, know your out, um, aldehydes as well. Um, other things in, within organic chemistry, your alkenes, uh, alkanes, things like that. These are very, very basic, very, very important to know as well, as well as your amines and your amides. Cool. Does that help with regards to the um, with regards to the question on organic organic chemistry? Um, I realize I've just spent a bit too much time on the the questions within the chat. Um, would you guys be interested in going through an abstract sort of question or stem that I picked out? Yep. Easy. So this is one of our uh, stems. Maybe am I sharing this? Can you see my OneNote? So question, should pattern recognition be similar approach for physics-related stems as well? So physics um, is, is a bit different. Um, uh, so physics is essentially analogous to maths, right? It's using whatever prereq knowledge um, you got from your maths um, and sort of applying that. So it doesn't um, like link too much with pattern recognition through visual lens, but it does link with like how you can sort of look at a formula. I think I'll get to this later on if, if we have time. Um, yeah, it, it's physics is a new ballpark. Cool. So this is one of our stems um, from uh, one of the mock exams that we have. Um, I'll give you maybe a minute to have a read and, you know, let me know what you think about it after. Um, and let's chat about approach to stems. Okay. So I'll give you a minute.
All right. So how are we tracking? How are we, am I, moment, yep. How are we going guys, do you need another minute? Yep, recording's gonna be on the Atlas or whatever, you, you'll get sent a link to the Atlas and that'll have the link for recording. Yep, just the STEM, um, how'd you find the STEM? Great, cool. Um, how are we going with the STEM? What did you guys think about it in terms of the content? Pretty straightforward, pretty simple, difficult to digest. Is it okay? Okay, so far, great. All right, with that said then, let's, difficult to digest, sure, okay. So with that said, oh, actually, this isn't very well thought out. Uh, this question over here. So you have the STEM, you have the first question, have a go at the first question. We'll come back and we'll try to, to sort of digest the STEM and talk about approaches to STEM. So I'll give you two minutes.
Okay, so I'm just going to launch a poll. Um, can everyone, oh, I'm muted, sorry. I've just uh, launched a poll. So just chuck in the, the answer that you think is correct. Cool. So I've got about half the people submitting. Uh, it'd be good to get some more answers to see what the range is like. Get some more data. So I'll give you 30 seconds. Just chuck it in. Doesn't matter whether you think it's right or wrong. Yep. Almost great. All right, so I'm going to pause it there and the poll. So you should be able to see the poll results, hopefully. Um, so can we see that about half of us have chosen A and the other half have sort of been spread across B, C, and D uh, with a quarter of us choosing C? So very interesting. Um, we can either do two things um, and you let me know what's more helpful for you. Um, would you like me to sort of go through the stem itself and try to break it down or try to go through it as I would on the day? Um, or would you like to head straight into the question? What would you find more useful? Beauty. Okay. So we'll go through it as, uh, as we would. All right. So, I'm going to keep chat here. All right. So I'm going to time myself because I feel like it might be more realistic to, to time. So I'm going to time myself for, I said two minutes a question, so I'll, I'll, I'll keep it. Oh, you can't see it. But I, I promise symbolically that that's two minutes. So I'll start it and we'll, we'll, go, we'll go ahead. Okay. Okay, so I started it. So Leonard Jones potential is a mathematical model that approximates the net intermolecular potential between a pair of neutral molecules. Okay, um, the model is based on the interaction between the electron clouds of both molecules. When two electron clouds overlap, there is a net repulsive force expressed as a positive intermolecular potential. Okay, interesting. So when uh, molecule one, molecule two overlap, um, there is a net... Uh, or I'm not going to do that. So I'm just going to write um, net repulsive force and then my intermolecular potential. I'm just going to write potential as voltage, right? Potential as, um, what is that saying? Positive. Okay, great. Um, however, when the molecules are separated, there is a net attractive forces. Okay, so this is molecule one and this is molecule two. Then this is net uh, attractive and therefore my potential is now negative. 
Okay, the Leonard-Jones equation incorporates both these phenomena and is given below. The equation can also be used to generate the plot shown in figure one. Whenever there's a reference, I have to look at the figure. So here's my potential, here's my separation, internuclear separation, okay? So I'm assuming that's between this, uh, the, the two nuclei and that's the separation distance between the two nuclei. And I have a bunch of symbols I don't know, but they're sort of similar to the ones I see in the formula. Okay, cool. So um, the van der Waals separation, which is the sigma, great, occurs when the electron clouds of two species first interact, and there's a finite distance at which the intermolecular potential between the two uh, molecules is zero. So at sigma, the voltage is zero. The bonding radius describes the distance between two separate molecules from the center of each nuclei. Okay, great. Um, so that's this here. So inter-nuclear separation. Um, that, that's also sort of the bonding radius on here. Okay, sure. Um, the well depth is a measure of how strongly, so I'll pause it there. I'll, I'll, I'll keep going with time, okay. And describes the, the well depth is a measure of how strongly two molecules attract and is typically at optimal bonding radius at which the bonding pair is said to be at equilibrium, sure. So well depth is a men, um, measure of uh, stability, okay, or strength, cool. I've finished reading my stem, okay? So it's taken me about two minutes and 15 seconds, all right? So let me sort of move into my question and not take too long to, to sort of, um, yes, it's going. So let me go on to the question and try and see where I can use my notes, if anything, or go back to the stem. So the first question, which of the following best represents the term used in Leonard Jones potential equation? So this is directly linking to the equation. So therefore, most of the other things, I'm just sort of drawing a blind eye to. It's talking about the equation, I go to the equation to describe the attractive forces between two molecules. Okay, so what have I written down that's linked to it? Well, I've talked about attractive forces here. I know that when my, uh, my, my sort of uh, force is attractive or net force is attractive, I know that my potential has to be negative. So this is linking it to the equation. So therefore I have to look particularly at this and try and see what part of the equation is negative right? Because I know that whatever part's negative is going to be indicative of an attractive force. So I can see that the only neg negative thing naturally is this part here. So therefore, this part of the equation simulates an attractive force. So therefore, the answer should be A. Okay, and I'll move on. So it's taken me about three minutes, okay, to finish this with talking with explanation to get to the answer A. Okay, any questions about the breakdown of that. The reason I wouldn't probably go for C, okay, um, is mainly because it sort of looks like a constant. I know that it's uh, also a measure of the strength of attraction between two molecules. Um, I, it, it's not negative. It doesn't sort of tell me anything about whether it's attractive or um, sort of uh, repulsive in nature. It's just about strength of attraction or strength of relationship between two molecules. So because I don't, you know, that that's sort of a lot, two logical jumps away um, from the stem itself, right? So I would probably go for what's the first thing from the information I read, what's the first conclusion I can make logically, what's negative within the equation, this part here. So therefore, A must be my answer, okay? Any questions?
Any questions? Does that make sense? So yeah, good question. So why wouldn't this? So in in reality, almost all of these questions or, or almost all of these options are correct to some extent. Okay, but you're choosing the most correct one, right? Best represents, not represents, best represents. Okay, so therefore all these options are put on a spectrum. So you have option A would probably be the best one because it is negative. It is a part of the equation. And remember, the question is also asking for term. Okay, this entire thing in the middle of the equation, okay, is a function. Okay, this is saying A minus B. That's, that's not one term, right? A minus B. And also the thing within the middle is giving you an indication of a difference, right? Between an attractive and a repulsive force. But we're not sort of, we don't care about that, right? We are only caring about the attractive force. So what best represents that? What term, what one term represents that within the equation? That's got to be the one with the negative sign on front of it. So I'd probably say that A is, is there, right? I'd put um, probably uh, probably C here, B here, uh, not B, sorry, A, C, D here, and B as my last one, yeah? So in terms of correct options, so A is my best representation, okay? B is my least favorable representation. All of them are correct to some extent. You can reason your way through all of them. The most correct one is A, okay? Cool, all good. Um, would you recommend taking notes during the exam? Personally, I, I, I did, okay? And it helped me a lot. The reason being that um, I my mind tends to waver. Um, so in order to keep myself engaged and accountable, every time I read, uh, every time I read a paragraph, I'd stop and think to myself, what is the major concept that I got from that paragraph? Okay, and write down one bullet point that best encap encapsulates that paragraph. Okay, this doesn't, the, the caveat with this is that you don't start writing sentences and you don't start writing bits of the paragraph. Okay, four to five words that summarizes that entire paragraph. The next paragraph you read, you stop to think to yourself, how did this add on from the first paragraph I just read? So you're constantly sort of questioning yourself and sort of forming relationships within the STEM. And this is the best way of staying actively engaged. There's no reason or there's no point in just passively reading the STEM or going, oh yeah, there's a figure, oh yeah, there's a formula. And then getting to the question and going, oh, hang on, I've forgotten what I've read, right? So personally taking sort of these bullet point notes or um, you know drawings of what the paragraph was saying was a way of keeping myself actively engaged, okay? And it's difficult to, it's, it's difficult to actively engage by just passively reading it because you've done section one, you've done section two, and then you've come to section three. Your concentration is already at 50%. So you wanna make sure that you actively engage as best as you can, all right? Um, would you recommend doing it on, on paper or a little whiteboard for both? Um, I'm not sure which is more practical. It, it doesn't matter. Uh, whatever you're more comfortable with. Um, yeah, I was more comfortable with paper, but uh, a lot of my students this season, they've, they've been comfortable with, with whiteboards. So, you know, each their own. Okay, cool. Any other questions before we move on to the next question? No. Okay. 
All right, so I'll get rid of all of this um, and we'll move on to the next question. Another thing that would be good to take away from this is um, the STEM does look eerily abstract. Be good to understand like the fact that even if it was so abstract, the first question was able to be done within you know within 40 seconds so it's a real skill um uh to to the person who just asked on the q a about the recording um it will be uploaded on an atlas that you like that you would have gotten a link to um or the phrases community that you can join the link to the recording will be uploaded there so i hope that helps um okay cool um, I didn't say anything at the start that was remotely helpful. Um, so, yes, just another thing as well, just to make sure. Oftentimes when you see a STEM like this, you're sort of, you know, you're looking at it, you're going, this is extremely unfamiliar. This versus a STEM about, you know, biological pathways. You choose the STEM with the biological pathways any day. But knowing that this question was able to be answered within 40 seconds, you know, whereas with bio questions, you're more choosing through options, thinking through them, et cetera, will take more time, right? So, you know, don't have that, try not to have that bias. When you look at a STEM, just go, oh yeah, this is going to be easy. Um, give each STEM a fair go. And if it's getting difficult after you've read it, after you're attempting the questions, it's not happening, it's fine. Put down an answer and move on, okay? Um, all right, so let's go to question 27 and 28. Um, so we'll do 27 uh, uh, first. I'll relaunch the poll. Um, and I don't know if it's already launched, but I'll relaunch the poll. I'll give you guys a minute. Um, have a go. You guys can do 27 and 28 within a minute and a half. It, these are not, again, try and see you know, what sort of concepts we wrote down that are helpful here. This isn't too complex. So just pause, reflect, um, try and get down to a 50-50 and choose your answer. Okay, so I'll give you a minute to look at 27 and 28. All right, so that's the one minute mark. I uh, would really love it if we chucked in more answers for 27. Even if you're not sure, just give it a go, just chuck in, chuck in an answer. 
Okay, five seconds. Chucking an answer. All right, okay. So I'm gonna share the results here. So the majority of us um, are under the impression that we don't have enough information. Um, now, again, the way we'd go about it, try and break down the question, okay? So we've got two molecules of xenon and we know that um, the van der Waals separation um, uh, between them is 4.80, okay? What's the best approximation for the radius of a molecule of xenon? Now, the van der Waals separation, where is that seen? And this is this is sort of the majority of GAMSAT stems and especially section three, right? It's nothing more than just sort of reading the keywords within the question and then reminding yourself, you know, where within the stem did I, did I see that? And that's sort of a process that, that phrases we like to call that mapping. So we read the stem, we sort of understand where majority of things are. We go to the question, identify the keywords and think to ourselves, where was it within the stem? And that's the majority of section three. It's just going sort of mapping and wearing, right? That, that's the majority of it. So van der Waals separation, where was that? That was at the start. So van der Waals separation occurs when two electron clouds, right? They first interact. So when the two electron clouds of, of xenon sort of interact here. So xenon and xenon. All right, great. And there's a finite and whatnot, at which the potential is zero. Now we know that the van der Waals separation is 4.10, but now that's a value. Right now, what is the 4.10? The 4.10 could be here, it could be here, it could be here, but we don't know what that value means. So therefore we can't sort of decipher that from the stem itself. So what other pieces of information do we have that can help us identify? Well, the graph, why? Because the graph has a sigma, okay? And how is that a link? Well, the sigma is randomable separation, right? And the sigma itself, we can see, is on the x-axis. And what is the x-axis a representation of? R. What is R? Internuclear separation. Okay, so what is that telling me? It's telling me that sigma is basically the same definition as R or internuclear separation. So if this is the nucleus of xenon, this is the other nucleus of xenon, then the distance between them, my internuclear separation, Right, is the same as my value that I have here of van der Waals separation, that is 4.10. Does that reasoning make sense? Any questions from that reasoning? Yep, makes sense. Yep. Yeah, sure. So we sort of... Um, we sort of, you know, went, okay, the question is asking us about, uh, you know, van der Waals separation. Um, we went, what is van der Waals separation? Well, van der Waals separation is when the electron clouds first interact. So here is my xenon molecule here, and here is my xenon molecule here, and that's when their electron clouds are first interacting, okay? But we know that, you know, the distance distance with when they first interact, um, that's called van der Waals separation, but we don't know what the value of 4.10, which we're given here, means. It could be the distance here. It could be the distance here. 
it could be within here like we don't know what it means right so we need to go hunting within the stem for more information about van der Waals separation and we know that more is given within the graph itself we can see that van der Waals separation is here sigma over here and we can see that it's on the x-axis now the x-axis is a representation of internuclear separation internuclear break that word down inter meaning between nuclear meaning nuclear Okay, so it's the separation or the distance between the two nuclei. And we can see that sigma is on the x-axis, which means that sigma or whatever value I have is the value for internuclear separation or the distance between two nuclei. Does that make sense now? So therefore, if this is the nucleus in the center and this is the other nucleus, then this distance here is 4.10. Okay, but we don't need internuclear separation. We want the nuclei of the of the atom, and the nuclei is just from the center to the edge of the atom. So therefore, roughly, this is going to be four point one zero divided by two because it's roughly a half, and therefore this is going to be two point one zero. So the answer is C. Okay, does that make sense? Any questions from that? Yep. All good. Any questions? Possibly another, you know, a reason of um, of just getting to the answer. This is probably the quickest way without even doing all this sort of, um, you know, this mumbo jumbo. Just look at the options, right? Let the options guide you. So we know that the, you know, the van der Waals separation, which is essentially when the two nuclei interact, or which is essentially when these two xenon molecules interact, we know that that separation, okay, when the electron clouds between that separation is 4.10, okay? So therefore the radius of one atom is not going to be 4.10, it should be much less because the separation between the two atoms when they first interact is 4.10. Even if it's this, right, you assume that the separation distance is 4.10. So the radius of one atom therefore has to be much smaller than the separation distance between the electron clouds. So we can get rid of A and we know it's not gonna be larger because we're talking about the radius of one single atom versus the separation between two atoms. And immediately, if we needed to pick an answer and you weren't tempted to go for D because you have the relevant information, you can immediately pick C without doing any maths or without you know thinking of sigma as an internuclear separation. Does that make sense? Any questions? So just a recap as to what we do when we sort of read a stem, have a read of the first, have a read of the stem first, have a read of the paragraph, stop, pause, reflect, think to yourself, what was the major concept I got from that? Write down a three to four word summary, move on to the next paragraph, move on to the formula, um, you know, have a read, think, okay, what is that saying? But also what has that now added to the information that I already know from the first paragraph? How are they linked? Okay, whenever you're looking at a graph, there's not much you're looking at within the 30 seconds you have to skim read it. You're looking at the major things here. You're looking at your axes. Are they logarithmic? 
logarithmic, it's nothing just means that the increments at which the y-axis are uh, increasing is not the same as uh, a sort of a linear increase as one, two, three, four. It goes from 10 to 100 to 1,000 to 10,000, okay? Is it logarithmic? Is it linear, etc. After this, think about the variables, okay? What variables are there? The intermolecular potential, internuclear potential, internuclear separation. Think about the variables. Think about their relationship, okay? And most importantly, think about context, okay? Where, with, how does this graph fit in within the narrative of the stem itself, okay? When I'm looking at a graph, these are the major things that I'm looking at, okay? Look at the axes, look at the variables, look at the relationship between the variables, and how does the graphs fit in with the rest of the stem? You don't have time to look at much else, okay? So after sort of having a read, writing down your, your like three to three word, four to four, um, three to four word summary, um, keep reading, keep constantly questioning yourself. How does this link in with everything I've just read? Get to your question, use keywords within the question, go back to your stem and start going, okay, where did I see this? What is this linked to? And then use that context to answer the, answer the question. Okay, this is in essence a simple nutshell of what section three is. Any questions so far um, that you would like me to answer? I can't see anything at the moment. Um, so I'll let you guys. Um, I've relaunched the poll for question 28. So if you can chuck in your answers for question 28, I'll give you a minute um, and then we'll, we'll move on. All right, last 30 seconds. Ten seconds. Just chuck in an answer if you don't know. That's completely fine. Yep, perfect. Okay. So I'll end the poll there and share the results. Again, majority of us think it's C, which is the right answer. And some of us have gone for D as well. So that's, that's completely fine. So does someone want to chuck in the chat how they did this question?
any any suggestions we've got one explanation excessively large is uh, not meeting the condition of equilibrium so theoretically there is no potential meaning zero okay got well depth is e graph shows ease on the x-axis is intermolecular potential is y so e occurs when y equals zero amazing good stuff and also um the, the major way of, of sort of looking at this is we have well depth, right? Where we've been asked for V, okay, intermolecular potential. Now, someone's asked, can you use the graph? There's nowhere where it says, you know, according to the formula, according to the graph. It says just given the information, right, what do you think? So use anything that has intermolecular potential there because that's the source of information to answering the question. So in this case, we've got two, two sort of um, suggestions. Now, given that we've got the well depth of something, it's essentially people might think, oh, there's numbers, so therefore I have to calculate something. But at an excessively large bonding separation, right, it's the x-axis within the graph that we need to look at because that, in essence, is talking about the separation between two molecules or aka bonding separation. Now, at an excessively large bonding separation, someone's written in the chat, as I keep going on and on, what do you notice about the intermolecular potential? Remember that your intermolecular potential is a y-axis. So what do you notice about that? What is it approaching? There's two ways we can get intermolecular potential. We can either get it from the formula or we can get it from the graph, right? Exactly, zero. It's reaching zero. That's your answer, okay? There's nothing more to it. It's literally asking, as you keep increasing the separation between molecules, as we're doing as we keep going along the X, we can see that the curve is getting back towards the X axis, getting back towards that zero. And lo and behold, our Y axis is talking about potential, which is exactly what we need right? So therefore, the answer is zero. Another way of thinking about it is if you use the formula, the bonding separation, remember, the bonding radius is given by R within the formula. And what do you notice about R? It's at the denominator, okay? If it's at the denominator, if I keep increasing my R, that is at excessively large bonding separations, at excessively large values of R, the entire fraction becomes excessively small and close to zero. Okay, so it becomes something like zero minus zero, okay, or 0 0.0001 minus 0 0.0002 or whatever, something like that, which is essentially zero. And you're multiplying that by well depth, whatever it might be, four times 0 0.997, as it says here. Regardless, if you're multiplying anything by zero, it's going to be zero, which is again, your intermolecular potential. Okay, so there's two ways of getting it. The easiest way would have been to look at the graph, see that it's approaching the x-axis, it's getting to zero, so therefore the answer is zero. Okay, any questions about that?
Any questions? So the major takeaway, again, from that, unless specified, use every bit of information that has the keyword in there. That's your wearing, right? You're going, looking at the keyword, going back to the stem, looking at where it is, and that's your entire mapping process, all right? So that that's sort of the major um, takeaway from this. Are there any questions about the STEM that you would like to discuss? Otherwise, would you think, you know, what else would you like me to, to sort of chat about? I was going to sort of go into um, micro strategies a little bit. So when we have a look at graphs, this is what we look at. When we have a look at tables, what do we look at? When we have a look at formulas, what do we look at? Um, I was going to go into that sort of thing. Would you find would you find that helpful, or what do you guys think? Well, we can just do some general question and answers. Yep, cool. So, what are some major things we've talked about? Organic chemistry, right? So let's do a list, right? So these are your micro strategies. So we've talked about organic chemistry. We've talked about the fact that you know, you're looking at your rules, you're looking at your concepts or uh, definitions, you're looking at um, sort of example similarity, okay? Um, major sort of difference in output and input within the mechanisms. Okay, so those are the major things you're looking at for, for organic chemistry. For graphs, we are essentially looking at these three things. Right. Um, for formulas, I sort of find it easy to look at it in terms of these three things, okay? Um, outputs, inputs, and influences, okay? So what I mean by that is start looking at a formula as, as a, essentially a way of denoting variables, okay? Or a way of denoting relationships. We know that the output here is intermolecular potential, but we know that there are a variety of variables that impact what the value of the intermolecular potential would be. That's how strongly the molecules are attracted to each other. That's your well depth, okay? You've got how uh, far apart are the electron clouds and how far apart are the nuclei. And this eventually affects your intermolecular potential. What's really important to understand is the relationship between the variables. So we can see that intermolecular potential is inversely proportional to the bonding radius. So the further apart the nuclei are, Right, so that means the increase in R will reduce your intermolecular potential. However, the the greater your um, uh, the the greater your um, sort of well depth is, the greater your intermolecular potential. So you're looking at your inputs. What are uh, and you're looking at your inputs? You're looking at your outputs. You're looking at anything that might influence that. So these are your major inputs. That's your output. The thing that's influencing this is the well depth there. Yeah, so these are things to look out for in formulas. The other things um, that, that's really important are units. Uh, sometimes units help you sort of create a formula in and of itself. Um, so, you know, you can use that to create a formula when the question is trying to test your synthesizing or your ability to synthesize relationships uh, from a given um, paragraph. So the paragraph might say, uh, you know, when A increases, B decreases, right, in, in more complex terms. And then your job would be to go, okay, well, then A is inversely proportional to B. 
So if I put an equal term there, then my formula therefore becomes K over B, where K is my constant, okay? So therefore this is my ability to create a formula right, based on the relationships that are there, okay? Cool. So these are sort of the major things that you look out for within formulas, okay? The major things you look out for within tables, um, trends, right, uh, significance, and context. Um, so really important for looking at uh, formulas for context as well. But in terms of tables, so I've got just like a random one here that I picked up from one of our stems. Um, so if we can have a look at this table, you can sort of try and see that, you know, we're using saline, we're using liraglutide and lenagliptin. These are two drugs that are used to um, help cholesterol or help reduce cholesterol. We've got a whole bunch of variables here and we can see that whole, um, that across the row, we're seeing the impact of saline, liraglutin and lenagliptin. Okay. Now, what I would like for you to understand is you sort of, it's important to notice the trend right across the table or whatnot. Um, so we can see that liraglutin and lenagliptin um, both have a lower whole body fat mass compared to saline, right? And that would be something that'd be really interesting to note. And we can see the, the trend across the, across the table there. That's the first thing. The second thing is significance. So without doing anything, if we answer question 33, which says which drug is effective as a weight loss agent, well, for weight loss, we look at whole body fat mass, right? And then across the three things, we can see that it's plus or minus, right? So that it has confidence intervals, okay? So we can see that liraglutide, for example, 31.42 is its sort of um, middle point. We add 4.8 to that and it becomes... Um, Eight zero, so it becomes two, uh, two one, so uh, two, so become thirty six point two two, um, and then you take away a certain thing, and it becomes you know twenty something, twenty something. Um, compare that with with the saline, right? Saline, which is fifty point one zero, you add five point six, essentially, that becomes fifty five point seven you decrease 5.6, right? Um, so that becomes what, 40, uh, 44, something like that. So we can definitely see that between saline here and, oh, sorry, between, not saline there, between uh, liraglutide here and saline here, there is definitely a significant difference right, between saline and liraglutide. So what does this mean? Well, you can therefore conclude because none of the values are overlapping, we can say that it's statistically significant or it's proving to have a significant effect on body, whole body fat mass. However, if we look at, for instance, lenagliptin, 42.3, and we're adding, let's say, 3.8, right, um, 3.8, so that would be roughly 46.1, Okay, 46.1, but can we see that within, so 46.1, right, which is, you know, a potential impact of Lena Glipton, Lena Glipton, we can see that 46.1 will lie within this range of saline, okay, lie within, lies within the uh, range of 
the numbers within saline. So what does that tell me? Someone check in the chat. So does that mean that lenagliptin is proving to have a statistical significant effect? Or does it mean that it doesn't have a statistical significant effect? No statistical, exactly. Because the value here, okay, is one of the values that saline also produces. Because these values overlap, you can't tell the difference between lenagliptin and saline, okay? So immediately, immediately, you know that the answer therefore has to be A, right, liraglutide, okay? Without reading the rest of the stem, this is just from looking at the data. So from looking at tables, you look at the trends, you look at the uh, statistical significance, right? And often significance is given by plus or minuses within tables. You also look at the whole context, right? Like if we move on to the next question, you don't have to do it, um, but it's essentially talking about what's better in the treatment of hypercholesterolemia. Well, then we don't know because there's a bunch of measures of cholesterol. We don't know what is the best measure of, you know, treatment of hypercholesterolemia, but that's something that, um, you know, the stem will tell me. The stem, incidentally, notice that in the last line here, it says that the ratio of HDL to LDL or LDL to HDL is a useful indicator of cholesterol health. So therefore we'll be looking at this ratio to see which drug has the most impact, okay? Immediately, immediately you sort of know, you sort of know your answer um, and that this is gonna be lenagliptin because you can see that, you know, it's the same uh, intervals and the same values for saline and liraglutin or liraglutide right? So you know that A and B is going to be your answer, mainly because this is different to this and this, okay? So we wouldn't have been able to get 34 were not for the context part of things we need to look out for within tables, okay? So within tables, again, looking out for the trends, the significance, and the context, okay? So the question says effective, like question 33, uh, Yep, effective, yep. Yeah, exactly, which is statistically significant because you want to see this is the effect of saline, liraglutide, and lenagliptin on whole body fat mass, right? So what is effective? What actually creates an effect that's actually plausible? Well, liraglutide, okay? Because it doesn't impact on the effect that lenagliptin and saline has, yeah? And that's to, to, to tell you that something has an effect, you look at the significance, which in this case, you're looking at the ranges of the values. Okay. That was sort of, um, you know, that, that, that's sort of uh, the major things to look out for within tables. And these are sort of your micro strategies to have, a, have at the back of your mind as well. Um, when you're looking at organic chemistry, these are the things to look out for. Graphs, formulas, tables, these are the things to look out for. Um, so I hope, you know, just mindful of time, I hope that's been helpful. I'll sort of, um, uh, if they all uh, didn't overlap and thus all significant, the most effective be, yeah, with the largest weight loss, essentially. Weight loss, the largest weight loss. Cool. All good. Um, I'll sort of stop my sharing there. I hope it's been helpful. 
Um, uh, let me know in the chat if there's anything else you'd like me to address in the last few minutes. Um, how would uh, I recommend using reading time? So for reading time, um, personally, I just sort of started doing questions. Um, now, this ultimately depends on your macro strategy. So if your macro strategy is to choose certain stems to do um, and, you know, um, it's sort of like choose certain stems to do, um, then it'd be worthwhile using that reading reading time to sort of go through and pick the stems. That That's a worthwhile use of your time. Um, the second thing you can do during reading time is sort of mark down which questions um, you want to avoid, which is the alternate of the first option. Personally, I just sort of started doing questions. Um, I know you can't write anything down, but it'd be good to sort of, you can move your cursor and stuff. So I'd sort of try and pick out concepts using that, uh, using my reading time. Hope that helps. Any other questions? I will stop the recording. Um.